with the Word of God open before us. Let's pray and ask God's blessing. Father in heaven, we need the help of Your Holy Spirit, O God, to understand Your Word and to apply it to our hearts. And so we ask You, O God, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, grant us. Where we cannot, O Lord, help us. And where we will not, O Lord, we pray You would have mercy and repent us and open our eyes that we might see wonderful things in Your law. We offer these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans, or sorry, Amos 8, and you'll see um, chapter 8, um, verse 1, begins with the Lord showing Amos a vision, and that goes back, of course, to the three visions in chapter 7. This is what the Lord showed me, verse 1, verse 4, and verse 7 of Amos 7. And then you have what we saw last week, Amaziah the priest, this prideful, pompous, petulant priest who comes and verbally assaults Amos, uh, an obvious symptom of the spiritual declension uh, of the people, as with priests, so with people, the old proverb. And uh, Amos pronounces the judgment of God upon him uh, as he interrupts Amos's four-point sermon. Evidently, Amaziah was a Presbyterian, and I was expecting only three points, and uh, he cut Amos off before he finished, and chapter 8 is the fourth point of Amos's sermon. Listen carefully, then. This is the Word of God. This is what the Lord showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies. They are thrown everywhere. Silence. Hear this, you who trample on the needy, and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, and that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great, and deal deceitfully with false balances? We may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, and sell the chaff of the wheat. The Lord has spoken by the pride of Jacob. Surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account, and everyone mourn who dwells in it, and all of it rise like the Nile, and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt? And in that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east, and they shall run to and fro to seek 
the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. In that day, the lovely virgins, the young men, shall faint for thirst, those who swear by the guilt of Samaria, and say, as your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of God endures forever. Well, generally in life, you don't know you've gone too far until you actually have. Remember, now as a child, I had the penchant. I would line up my plastic soldiers with little flat bottoms on them, and I would put them down, and I would take an elastic band and stretch it and fire at them and kind of kill them, essentially, in my mind's eye. And sometimes I would even apply the same method of attack against my sister. Um, and my father would look at me um, and say, son, um, be careful because you're stretching the plastic band. You'll stretch it too far one day and there'll be tears in the end. And of course, when you do that, you don't know you've stretched an elastic band too far until you actually have. And then there's the pling and the nasty pain in the eye. And you get what you deserve, much to the, chagrin, much to the joy of one's offended sister. And um, that logic applies to many things in life. It applies to driving. If you young lad and you enjoy driving your father's car too fast around bends, you will not know that you've gone too far until you slide off understeering or oversteering and crash into your neighbor's lamppost. Um, and once you've lost control, it's very difficult to regain it again. And that principle stands true also theologically with the patience of God. Uh, the Puritans have said, God's love has a heaven and his wrath a hell to display themselves through all eternity, but his patience has but a short-lived earth. And in our text this evening, we see the northern ten tribes of Israel come to the end of God's patience, and it's a devastating moment. Now, of course, this begs the question, can that ever happen to a Christian? And the answer is yes and no, or no and yes. It can't happen to a true Christian. The the Bible is replete with promises that the elect are safe. Christ is the guarantor of the covenant of grace, right? Um, he has promised that he, I've come not to do my will, but the will of Him who sent me in John 6. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that of all He has given me, I lose none but raise them up on the last day. Those who have been given by God the Father into the hands of God the Son, are kept and sealed by, the, by God the Holy Spirit and can never be lost. For, for Christ to lose one sheep given by the Father into, the, into His hand would be um, uh, an irreversible reproach on His good name. There are many promises. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me, and I know them, or I know them, and they follow me, and they shall never perish neither shall anyone snatch them out of the Father's hand, John 10, uh, 25, and so forth, and following. No one can snatch them out of my hand or my Father's hand, Jesus says. It's like we're held in a two-handed grip. The, the God the Son and God the Father hold us and keep us. Or um, 
1 Peter 1, 3 and following, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead.'" to an inheritance incorruptible, imperishable, and undefiled, and it does not fade away. You cannot corrupt heaven. You cannot lose your place in heaven. Your title to heaven is not like an old dollar that can stay in your pocket and get torn and, and become worthless. Once you have that title deed in your hand, you're safe forever. Peter goes on, we are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last day. God's power keeps you. The blood of Christ guarantees you, and the Holy Spirit will never ultimately forsake you. Having said that, of course, it is one thing to be saved, another thing to know you're saved, another thing merely to think you're saved. And the Word of God to the church in 2 Peter 1 and many other places is essentially make your calling and election sure. And the New Testament is replete with warnings to the visible church, which contains true sons and false within her pale. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. And John Murray, the great professor of systematic theology at Westminster, said, there's no footnote there that if you're really sure you're one of the elect, this verse doesn't apply to you. He says this, for there is, there is an irreducible, irrevocable logic there. If you, professed child of God, live according to the flesh, you essentially will prove that you were never called and never elect, and therefore you will die. And the promises, the threats like that in the Bible, and they're all over the place, Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10 as well, of course, the most terrifying of all, are there to lay hold of the lapels of pilgrims as we wander into the works of the flesh to warn us, run for your life. And like Lot, we leave Sodom. And like Lot, sometimes the angels have got to grab us and pull us out of Sodom, and we're saved. But sometimes there are those among, in our midst who are more like Lot's wife, who look back, and that look betrays the reality or lack thereof of their calling and election, and they perish. And even gentle Jesus, meek and mild, has said in his shortest but perhaps most penetrating sermon point, remember Lot's wife. It's not an Old Testament thing when God was cranky. It's an eternal principle for all God's people in both Testaments. And it was entirely unplanned, of course, but this morning's sermon is a, is, a, is a beautiful New Testament parallel to this, as Christ hides Himself from people who don't want to believe in Him and cast Him off into the darkness. And they're deprived from the arm of the Lord being revealed to them because of their wicked and willful refusal to believe. And sometimes our Arminian brothers will say, well, how can God judge somebody for not doing what they can't do? If they can't believe, how can God condemn them for not believing? And of course, the reason they can't believe is because they wickedly won't believe. It's a wicked refusal. It's because they hate God so much that they can't believe, that they're bound by chains of their own making. And so it's just for God to punish them and to um, condemn them. Just as I suppose you might 
a judge would rightfully condemn. If a pedophile came before a court and he said, what, what defense do you bring? Well, oh, I can't help myself. Every time I see a child, I have these thoughts and these desires, and I just can't help myself. That doesn't, you don't go, well, you know. <laughs> For a moment there, I thought you really had to make yourself abuse children against your nature. So it's not so bad now that actually you're enslaved to the thing. No, the very fact that his nature enslaves him, he can't help himself but abuse children, actually makes his offenses 10,000 times worse, right? And it's just like that with unbelief and rebellion against God. The fact that we can't because we won't is no defense. It actually heightens and increases our guilt. And so Amos 8 is a word written to the non-elect in the Old Testament church. But it's also a sign of warning, just like Romans 8, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Um, if you keep on sporting with God's patience again and again and again and again, you've got to be careful because you may prove yourself to be non-elect, and that's, you don't want to find yourself in that position. It's like that car bumper sticker. I always want to get spray paint and write beneath it, you know, all who wander are not lost. True, but I also want to write beneath it, not, also, all who wander, not all who wander come back, right? And so, wandering away from God is a bad strategy from coming back to Him again. It's like playing Russian roulette. It's a bad strategy if you want to live. You might not die the first time or the second time or the third time or the fourth time, but chances are in the first six times, sometime you're going to die, right? Unless you're using an automatic pistol with a magazine, and then you're in trouble the first time. But nonetheless, I digress. So, Romans, so Amos 8 is a very sobering passage, and it's a passage for us all um, to read in those moments when we think we can sin presumptuously. A bit like Heinrich Heine, the German novelist, who and his, his last words were, of course God will forgive me. It's his job. No. Amos would say, I beg to differ. And so, this is the reality. It, 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 it's um, it's the warning sign um, at the curve, you know, in the mountains when you come up, and it warns you of this, the, the, these uh, steep curves coming up to reduce your speed. Chapters like this are there, there for us to read whenever we're tempted to sin presumptuously, uh, almost like Psalm 19 when he says, keep your servant back from presumptuous sins, lest they rule over me. And Amos 8 is a reason why you should long to be kept back from presumptuous sins, because they're not safe, and they're significantly aggravated against God and against His nature. So, three points this evening. We'll work through this text. Um, first of all, I want you to see, and they kind of all begin with R, um, and there are actually three points, but there are six R's, as you'll find out. The first thing is, I want you to see, is the ripeness and the ruin of judgment. The ripeness and the ruin. I like rolling my R's. The ripeness and the ruin of judgment. And you see that in the first three verses. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. This is perhaps in the autumn time, and um, people will be bringing baskets of summer fruit to um, the temple, and they're coming in maybe with their baskets, families coming in to worship in, at, at Bethel or, and, and Dan. Um, and Amos is there preaching to these people, bringing their baskets of summer fruit. This is what the Lord showed me, behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. 
Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. And the word end and, and, and um, um, fruit is, there's a, there's a play on words here in, in the Hebrew. Uh, the um, NIV captures the play on words well. What do you see, Amos? He asked, a basket of ripe fruit. I answered, then the Lord said to me, the time is ripe for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The fruit is ripe in a stinky way, like a teenager's gym bag and the shoes in it. And the time is ripe for judgment. And you see the connection. You know, Amos is just the messenger boy here. And there's a, it's like see something, say something. God shows him something. And therefore, Amos must say something. And what Amos says directly corresponds to what God shows. The message comes… It's not that Amos is a negative, you know, hellfire and, you know, sweaty damnation preacher. He's just, he's just clearly articulating the Word of God. See something, say something. That's the law of prophecy by which prophets live and die. When God shows you something, you have to say something. And not just something, but everything that the Lord shows you. The ripeness and the ruin of judgment. What's that mean? The end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The verb pass by here is the verb for pass over them. It's like the days of Passover are over. I will no, I will no longer pass over them in my wrath but I will fall upon them in my fury, is the idea. And it's graphic. You can imagine a CNN reporter or a Fox News reporter walking through the catastrophe, and they're just pale-faced and shocked. What do you see, Shepherd Smith says? So, so many dead bodies. They're thrown everywhere. What do you hear? Silence. It's a complete extermination of the northern ten tribes, wiped off the face of the earth, and all that's left is nothing. Hmm. The ripeness and the ruin of judgment. God suffers long, but He will not suffer forever. And the word is, don't test his patience. If that's not the truth of this passage, I don't know what is. Yes, when sin abounds, grace is much more abound for the elect. How do you know, though, that you're one of God's elect? Essentially, you find in your life the restoring grace of God. You can say with some measure of frequency, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He restoreth my soul. Literally, He causes my soul to repent. He guides me in the pathways of His righteousness. Not perfectly, but progressively, purposefully. I'm seeing myself grow and mature. 
And it's a word for those who find themselves um, enslaved in this rinse and repeat cycle of sin. Like the alcoholic who just constantly goes back. He, he gets drunk and he goes next morning with a sore head, oh, never again, oh, never again. And, and as his neurochemistry kind of settles down during the morning into the afternoon, the hangover lifts, and in the evening he's climbing back again into the bottle. And the next morning it's the same, oh, never again, never again. And there, there's a sense if, if that's you, whether it be alcohol or some other sin, this text and text like it should sober you. I mean, why else did God put them in the Bible? And I, I can't be true to the Scriptures and tell you that's all Old Testament. Just don't worry about it. No, it's a sober reality. And I recognize in saying that there are some of you here who should be alarmed by this text, and you will brush it off like water off a duck's back and walk on quite happily. And then those of you who are going, this is me, this is me, I'm lost, I'm undone, you're probably the most godly person in this building, right, with least to be worried about. Um, and I can't help that. I've got to preach the truth and let the Holy Spirit um, apply it as is true. But it's the truth of Scripture, and I need to be true to it. The rightness and the ruin of judgment, or the, the, the ripeness and the ruin of judgment. Secondly, I want you to see this evening the rightness and the reason of judgment. The rightness of and the reason for, you might say, better grammar, judgment. Verse 4, hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great, and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, and sell the chaff of the wheat? And so, God here is unpacking his lawsuit. He's, 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 he's saying why he's judging his people. Now, it's, a, it's amazing to note these people actually have a high view of the Sabbath. They're not selling and buying on the Sabbath, right? They have some Sabbath convictions. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh is a Sabbath unto the Lord thy God. On it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son, nor thy daughter, nor thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy ox, nor thy ass, nor anything. You know, goes on. And so, um, they've got some conviction they shouldn't work on Sundays. It amazes me how that's been lost in our day and age. I am, I am in the the candidates and exams committee of our presbytery, and I'll ask ministers of the gospel who take exceptions to the Sabbath commandment, which is fine, um, and they'll, they'll say things like, you know, I believe you can walk with your wife on Sunday. And I'm saying to them, what? <laughs> you know, um, I, I come from an ecclesiastical tradition as to the right of Geng Genghis Khan when it comes to the Sabbath day, and I don't know any of my people who say you can't walk with your wife on Sunday. You can do a lot more with your wife on Sunday than just walk with her, right? Um, don't be ridiculous. That, and that's always a smokescreen. It's really what they say is, I, I, I believe I, I can throw ball with my kids in my backyard. Well, again, 
who doesn't believe that? I mean, that's like, what, what do you think I do? Do you think I tie my wife to a chair with duct tape and my children also so they can't play and have fun? That's not the Sabbath day, right? But they say that, and what they're really doing is they, they bring up these kind of false objections to the Sabbath, and then they, and they, and they slip under the table gross violations of the Sabbath. And so I'll ask them, what, what, do you believe of the, what do you believe in commerce on Sundays? And they go, never thought about it. I'm thinking, you've never thought of it? It's one of the Ten Commandments. You've never thought about it. But these people have thought about it. They stop their business on Sundays, and they come to church, and they worship. They're Sabbatarians. But being a good Sabbath keeper doesn't make you a good Christian. The Pharisees were good Sabbath keepers. One of the best ways I know of self-atonement, one of the worst ways, but it's one of the most common ways, maybe, of atoning for your own sins is like doubling down on the Sabbath day and being really reformed. And I've known men who think they can atone, maybe, for flagrant violations of the seventh commandment by trying really hard to keep the fourth commandment. But these people are good Sabbath keepers. The problem is their heart. The heart is the main thing in religion. And as these people are at church on Sundays worshiping, they're saying to themselves, oh, when will this new moon be over? <laughs> when will this bank holiday be over? When, when will the Sabbath be over that we can get back to business? They're at church, but their heart's not there. Their heart's in the marketplace. They're distracted. That's bad. But the deeper problem is their attitude toward the poor. They're oppressing the poor and the needy. Um, when the poor bring wheat to sell it, they make their weights heavier or, or lighter, um, and so the, the, the poor are getting cheated. Their, their, their scales are dishonest. Alec Matir says, they loved gain more than they loved honesty. They used a small ephah, a small standard for measuring out goods purchased, and they used a great shekel for weighing the money taken in exchange. In other words, they sold less than they ought for more than they should. They dealt deceitfully with the poor. Gary Smith said, their formal piety is betrayed by their true feelings. It's sober. Trampling on the poor. And they view the poor as a commodity, something to be bought and sold cheaply. Verse 6, we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff off the wheat. Guy Smith again says, Amos is not condemning an economic system. It is rather the abuse of workable economic arrangements by persons having significant economic control to manipulate things to their own advantage. These new ways of doing business ignore the religious and ethical standards within the traditions of Yahweh. In other words, Amos is not a closet Marxist. He's not condemning capitalism, right? Um, 
It, it's not wrong. It, 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 is, it is wrong to deprive the poor of his fair day's wage for a fair day's work. It, it, it's, not, it, it's wrong to pay the poor properly for the merchandise they're selling and to give them proper money back. And when you sell them wheat, you don't mix it with the chaff, which is what's going on here, um, selling the chaff of the wheat. There's wheat there, but there's also chaff mixed in to kind of, they're getting a bit of chaff with the wheat when they're only paying for wheat, right? And there's all this deceit. So that's wrong, right? But, but Amos is not saying that if a man starts a business with his own genius and capital, he ought not to expect some return on his investment, right? He's not condemning capitalism. As Winston Churchill said, capitalism is the worst form of economic arrangement except when it's compared to all the rest. I think that's true. He's comparing the hearts of these men who love money more than they love God, and who love money more than they love people, and abuse the one to get the other. The rightness and the reason for judgment. And then thirdly, the reality and the reminiscence of judgment. The reality, it's a real thing that's unstoppable, but it's also a reminder of previous judgments in the past. We'll see that here now. The reality and the reminiscence of judgment. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob. That's an interesting statement. God swears by His own holiness. An unchangeable thing is the idea. When God makes an oath, He makes an oath based upon an unchangeable foundation. When He promises your salvation, He makes that oath on the basis of the blood of the eternal covenant, a a foundation that cannot be shaken, that cannot erode, that cannot fail. It's It's an immovable object. That's the principle. And He's sworn by His own holiness in the past in Amos. Here, though, He's swearing by the pride of Jacob which is almost, in in human terms, an immovable object. These are people who are proud, puffed up, full of themselves, empty of God, and empty of grace. And, And notice the judgment, shall not the land tremble on this account, and everyone mourn who dwells in it? And all of it rise like the Nile, and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth in every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. It's a day of judgment, a, a judgment perhaps um, fulfilled in an earthquake, the land shaking. Guy Smith says, the, the movement of solid land is terrifying. Never been caught in an earthquake, but I'm told it unsettling. And any shifting that tosses about the land represents a major collision of the earth's surface plates. The latter report of an earthquake about two years after the preaching of Amos would seem to be the fulfillment of this prophecy. If you look in Amos, two, or Amos 1 verse 1, the words of Amos, and it says, um, 
spoken to Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Amos' prophecy came two years before this great earthquake. And it's, it seems to be the fulfillment of this shaking of the land. What's interesting here to me, though, is I want you to see two things as, as we look at the, 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 these last verses of Amos 9. You see a pagan land lost in darkness and a people lost in silence. This is the reality and the reminiscence of judgment again. A, a pagan land lost in darkness. Look at verse um, not 8 through verse 10. Does it remind you of anything? Now, actually, this, uh, this, this is not, I didn't find this in any of the commentaries, so you can be free to ignore me if you like. Um, but it seems to me fairly clear that Amos is casting his mind back to the judgment of God upon Egypt. Except this time, it's the judgment of God upon Israel. Shall not the land tremble on this account, and everyone mourn who dwells in it? And all of it rise like the Nile, and be tossed about, and sink again like the Nile of Egypt. Now, that language is reminiscent of the Egyptians being destroyed in the Red Sea, which was the river of Jordan as Israel left Egypt for the promised land. But interestingly, now it's been spoken about as Israel, as if they were Egypt, being tossed about and thrown down into the Nile. In other words, Israel haven't left Egypt at all. They're, they're behaving as if they've stayed put in Egypt and never left there in the first place. And because they're living like the Egyptians, you walk like an Egyptian, you know, because they're living like an Egyptian, they're being judged like the Egyptians. And they're sinking down like Pharaoh and his army into the, not the, the Red Sea, the, the, the river of redemption, but the Nile, the river of pagan Egypt. This picture of judgment, it has historical precedent. It's like almost God saying, if I judge, I'd have to apologize to Egypt if I didn't judge you, Israel, because you're guilty of the very same sins that Egypt committed. And because I judge them, I must judge you. If you live like them, if you walk like them, you can expect to drown like them in the river. And then he goes on, What, what does this remind you of? I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. The darkness of the final plague. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth in every waist and boldness on every head. I will make it like the mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. What's that remind you of? Does that not remind you of Egypt, the firstborn dying, and the wailing in Egypt as the firstborn from Pharaoh, the highest king, to the lowest commoner, die? It's a sober, sober thing. It's reminiscent of Egypt, but it's real, and it has to be. A pagan land, the reality and reminiscence of judgment, a pagan land lost in the darkness, and then Lastly, a people lost in the silence. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, from north to east, 
They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. They're lost in the darkness, dead, but they're also lost in the silence. It's an ominous fulfillment of that word at the beginning in chapter verse 3. They're thrown everywhere, these bodies. Silence. It's not just men who are no longer speaking because they're dead. It's God who is no longer speaking. God. It's the worst judgment God can give a people, a famine for hearing the Word of God. And you see precedent for that. You remember in, in, in 1 Samuel 3, verse 1, now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. I never forget Ralph Davis and class saying to us, boys, don't ever forget this. You may have all of Calvin's commentaries, and you may have your Hebrew and your Greek and all of the, the lexicons, in your, but if you are not walking with God, no homiletical technique can make up for the, for the want of a close personal walk with God. But if you're not walking with God, if you're grieving the Holy Spirit by the way you're living in private, the Word of the Lord may be rare in your church. You may preach the Bible, you may explain the Bible, but there'll not be that sense of God coming down and filling the Bible with His fullness and speaking and thundering with a still small voice and a roaring thunder, depending upon the need of the people in the moment, in the service of the Word. And that's one of my concerns in the Reform. One of the reasons I believe why the Reformed church is languishing. My former denomination, the PCA, I forget when it was. It was around, I think, 2011 or so. We published our strategic report because for the first time, we were the fastest-growing church, evangelical church in North America. And suddenly, we crested and we began to shrink. And the immediate thought of all the higher-ups was, oh, maybe we're not, our strategy's off, we're not doing enough, and so forth and so on. And nobody stopped to ask the question, maybe we've grieved the Holy Spirit. Never crossed our mind. And yet hearing so many students coming out of seminaries and speaking and preaching and opening the Word of God, and what they said was true, it was like so much theological blah, 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 justification by faith alone, blah, 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 sin is very blah, 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 God is very merciful, blah, 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 blah. You know, it was just, but it came out with the power of someone reading the telegraph directory or the, the telephone directory. And if that's not happening here, it's only the grace of God upon me. I, I, I don't deserve anything less than to be cast out and thrown out into the darkness, right? But don't, don't think that just because we have orthodoxy and just because we have, you know, logos and other Bible study tools that the Word of God won't be rare here if I or we or you grieve the Holy Spirit of God. people lost in the silence. You may wonder, but it doesn't make sense. They're seeking the Word of the Lord, but they're not finding it. Why? That doesn't seem, that doesn't seem, that doesn't make sense to me, right? Why would that happen? Well, the reason goes on if you look at the next passage. In that day, the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, as your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. 
what Amos is saying is they're seeking the word of the Lord, but they're still joined to their idolatrous worship of the false gods. He calls it the guilt of Samaria. That's who their God is. They may call him Baal, or they may even call him Yahweh. They might have the right name for the wrong God. Like Aaron, when he built the, the golden calf and said, this is Jehovah who brought you out of Egypt. And God wasn't impressed just because they got the name right. That made it worse. And God came down, you remember, and visited, poured great wrath upon the people in Exodus in the days of Pentateuch. And so, these are people here, and they, they're conscious of lost something. The Bible no longer has its power and influence over them. And yet, the idols still have their heart. They're swearing by the guilt of Samaria, and they're making these pilgrimages to Beersheba to worship their idols. And they're halting between two opinions, as Elijah would say. In one sense, they want the Word of God, but in another sense, they want the emptiness of their idols, who are much easier to serve and require much less true repentance and reformation of the heart. And so judgment befalls these people. And you think, well, that's not a very encouraging message to end the Lord's day. Where's their hope? Well, there is hope here. Here is a God whose patience has run out with these non-elect people in the land of North Israel. But you see here a picture of the love of God, don't you? As you look at these people dying in the darkness, on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. It reminds you of Pharaoh's son dying in the darkness. But there's another thing there that reminds me, isn't it? Not just Pharaoh's son dying in the darkness, but God's own son dying in the darkness that God will treat His Son, Jesus, like a wicked, scurrilous, unrepentant idolater and cast Him out into the darkness so that He might gather people like you and me into His warm embrace and call us well-beloved sons. Oh, the grace of God. He would treat Christ like He ought to treat me and treat me, like he ought to treat Christ. And every time the worship of God happens in this place, and may it always be this way, till the sun rises to set no more, Christ is offered from this pulpit, a God who will treat Christ as an idolater, that he might welcome you and me into true worship. He might punish Christ for our sins and bless us because of Christ's righteousness. And Christ dies in the darkness that we might live in the light and yet, a God who is so great to offer such grace to people is not a God whose patience you want to provoke. I think it was Thomas Watson said, nothing is more cool than lead. You take lead and you put it against your cheek in a hot day and it feels cold. And yet, nothing is more scalding when molten Nothing more cool than lead, nothing more scalding than molten. And Watson, I think it was, said, nothing more refreshing and cool than the love and mercy and 
patience of God, and yet nothing more scolding when provoked. And so maybe you're here today, and if the love of God won't draw you from your sins, professing Christian, and you're in this rinse, recycle, repeat, uh, rinse and repeat cycle of sin, oh, I feel sorry for it, I hate it, and the consequences are terrible, the hangover is awful, and then the next day, back again to the hangover, day in and day out, week in and week out, and the love of God is pulling you, and should always be the greatest motivation, how can I sin and do this against a God who, who sacrificed His own Son for me? And if the, if the love of God won't draw you to repentance, then surely the God of Amos 8 and His patience running out and His wrath should, in one sense, terrify you toward repentance. And because God loves you so much, He's using both the left and the right arm, the right hand of love and the left hand of wrath to pull you out of your sins. Turn ye, turn ye, God says, with tears running down His face, for why will you die? It's like Israel, Judah, and Jesus outside Jerusalem, and He's weeping. And even in that moment as Christ is weeping, without any way denying the impassibility of God, Christ is weeping. And the angels are saying, oh, He's just like His Father. He's just like His Father. He that has seen me has seen the Father. God isn't going in heaven. Son, pull yourself together. Don't you know you're supposed to be impassable, son? Stop this crying. No, he's giving you a picture of God there, the Son in the Father's name, crying over the Father's enemies because they will not turn and come under his wings that he might shelter them from the Father's wrath. Why would you prefer your sins over such a Savior? Let's pray together. O oh God, our Father in heaven, we thank You for Jesus, His gentle, beautiful, kind heart, so patient. All day long, God has said, I hold out my arms to a wicked and disobedient people. And yet, so often, we keep turning away from You. We provoke Your patience. We despise Your love. And Paul says, do you not know that the goodness of God leads you to repentance, but in, in, in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to every man according to his deeds. O oh Lord Jesus, grant that your goodness and your mercy will lead me and this people to an honest, whole soul, top to bottom repentance. We might carry the grace of repentance with us constantly from beginning to end through faith in Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. We pray. Amen.